Hello, everyone. I will be reading our scripture passage today from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It can be found on page 965 of the Pew Bible in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church, (laughs) again. (laughs) Emily, thank you for for reading that passage for us. Well, as you have have probably seen on your way in, uh, we're going to be starting a new series that's going to last about 10 weeks here, and we're going to walk through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and this section that's commonly called the seven letters to the churches. Now, for those of you who were not at our church membership meeting about a month ago, I know some of you were, but for those who were not at the meeting, let, let me bring you into a moment that happened in this meeting. So Pastor Benjamin was talking in more detail about his summer sabbatical, which He is now a week into, and we're thankful to the Lord that he is resting. And I saw him yesterday, and he was—he looked great. (laughs) Um, But as he was explaining his plans for the summer sabbatical and was talking about how we're going to cover the preaching uh, particularly, he mentioned that we were going to be doing a sermon series through the beginning few chapters of the book of Revelation. And as he said that, there was an audible gasp of intrigue. (laughs) You can ask the people who were there. Now, despite what David and I might want to think, that gasp, I'm sure, was not because of our preaching prowess. Um, I can be very assured of that. Why I think that gasp happened was because of the book of Revelation. I think we all have some sort of a strange relationship with the book of Revelation. I think most of us are likely intrigued by it, but we're intrigued by it because of what other people tell us about the book. We don't actually get close to this book ourselves. I know that I don't. And I think there are two errors that we often make when we approach the book of Revelation. I think one is for us to try to equate all of these crazy symbols that we come across one-to-one to them exactly referring to political events in our day. So if you read the book of Revelation and people are talking about Russian helicopters and, I don't know, vaccines, 
You're probably not reading the book the right way. But I don't think that's our problem largely here as a church. I don't sense that. I think we might be tempted to swing to another sort of error, where because of the abuses that have been done in interpreting this book in that way, we would swing and ignore the book or or treat it and keep it at an arm's length. Our practice oftentimes as a church is all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, except for the book of Revelation. It's often how we act. And our avoidance of the book leads, leaves us a lot like otherwise healthy people who are deficient in one particular vitamin or mineral, mineral that our body really needs. And so it doesn't matter how healthy you eat. If you're low on iron, your body is going to feel it. We are people at this church. You all are people. As I talk to you, as I know you, you love the scriptures. You love God's word, as do I. But if we don't put revelation into our diet, then we will miss out on the blessings of full spiritual health that the Lord would have for us. And so I'm going to invite us this morning and throughout our whole series here over these 10 weeks through the beginning portion of this book to get close to it. Bring it close to you. Maybe not just in our preaching as we hear these words, but read it, digest it, and let's experience the blessings that Jesus would have for us in this book together. Well, as we unpack these first eight verses this morning, we're going to do it by way of asking two simple questions of this passage. So the first question we're going to ask is, what even is this book that we have in front of us? What is the nature of the book of Revelation? And the other question is, why was it written? So very simple. What, was, what is this book and why was it written? And with all that said about our misunderstandings about the book of Revelation and potential errors, I think it's good to acknowledge up front that the book is incredibly hard to understand. I, I just bought a, uh, a Bible commentary on the book of Revelation to help us preach through it. And it's like 200 pages of just introduction before he, the commentator even gets to chapter 1, verse 1. This is a book that is difficult to understand. And so in order to ask, understand it rightly, I think it's helpful as we come at it to ask ourselves, what is the nature of this book? So I think from these opening verses, we see three things that this book is. The book of Revelation is. Number one, the book of Revelation is an unveiling. It's an unveiling. If you look at verse 1 there, how the book begins, begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation is actually the, the Greek word that we transliterate as apocalypse. It's, for, what it, for what it's worth, it's apocalypsis in the Greek. So it, we transliterate it to the word apocalypse. Now, that word apocalypse in Greek doesn't carry the same type of end of the world, no toilet paper on the shelves type of connotation that it might for us today. Originally, the word apocalypse simply means to unveil something, 
to reveal something previously hidden. Now, when we typically think about pulling back the curtain and unveiling something, typically what we find behind the curtain is either less impressive than what's on the surface of reality. Think about like the Wizard of Oz, right? So this grand thing, but behind the curtain, there's just this man pulling strings. Or when we pull back the curtain, we find something more unsavory and and more disgusting of what went on behind the scenes than what's on the surface. Think of the Watergate scandal. Think of Harvey Weinstein. But this is not true of what we read of in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation pulls back the curtain on our world to show us the plans and purposes of God in history. This is, after all, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It is an unveiling of his wonderful plans and purposes for history. And now notice two things here before we we move on to our next point. First, this book is a revelation, right? It reveals, it doesn't obscure. This book assumes that the reader will be able to understand it. So that should be encouraging to us as we approach this book. Revelation actually sheds light on God's purposes in the world, in history, through Jesus Christ. The second thing I want us to notice here is that while apocalypse also means, uh, it means unveiling, it, apocalypse was also a style of writing that was around in the first century. So if you were to look at first century literature, you would find other writings that were apocalyptic, meaning they followed a similar style that the book of Revelation does. And one of the primary ways that this apocalyptic type of literature communicates is through the use of pictures and symbols, like we find in the book of Revelation. So a helpful way to think about this is think about the book of Revelation more like a cartoon or a graphic novel than a classic work of literature. It's a book that you read, but more than read, you you see. You're supposed to get these pictures and symbols. The pictures and symbols are the vehicles for the unveiling. And we're going to start to see that more next week as we start to get into this first section of the book that's highly, uh, where these images and symbols and visuals are more highly used. So the book of Revelation is an unveiling. Second, it's a prophecy. Would you look with me at at verse 3 of chapter 1 again? It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, did you catch that at the beginning? The book straight up says that it is a prophecy. The book of Revelation, while it is unique from other writings in the Bible, if you were to compare it to, for instance, the prophets of the Old Testament— especially the prophets of Daniel and Zechariah, you would find a lot of similarities. Now, like the word apocalypse, uh, the word prophet is another word that can lead us into trouble because of our own preconceived 
ideas. So, so many of us, when we hear the word prophet, we think baptized fortune teller. Right? We think somebody come from God to tell us about what's going to happen in the future. But in the Bible, this is not the primary role of the prophets. You see, when we think of prophets, we should, rather than thinking of fortune tellers, we should think prosecuting attorneys. The primary job of a prophet was to bring a message from God to his people. And the message of the prophets was often a legal charge leveled against the people saying, hey guys, you have broken God's law, and unless you repent, judgment is coming. And like Revelation, the prophets often conveyed this message with vivid imagery. So the primary function of the prophets was was not fortune-telling, rather it was truth-telling. It was telling the truth from God to his people about their sin and their coming judgment if they do not repent, but also about the blessings that would be theirs if they would turn from their sin and repent. Now, while the the prophet's primary job was not to fortune tell, when they spoke about the blessings, though, that would be available for the people of God if they were to repent, Sometimes their, their promises of blessing spoke past their present age to speak of a coming age and a coming savior that they called the Messiah. See, the prophets held out hope to the sinful people of God, an age where their king, their savior, the Messiah, would bring salvation and restore God's creation. And they spoke about this coming age of God's savior and king, and when they spoke of it, they often referred to that age as the last days. If you look at Daniel chapter 2 or Isaiah chapter 2, you'll see this. This was the expectation and hope of the Old Testament prophets, is that in the last days which were to come, the Messiah would come and he would restore blessing to God's people. Now, with, mention, with the mention of the last days, a question that often comes up in Christian circles and a question that often comes up when we start talking about the book of Revelation is, do you think we're living in the last days? It's often spoken in hushed tones like that. Do you think we're living in the last days? And if you were to ask me that question, I would say, yes, of course we are. And we have been for 2,000 years. You see, what the prophets of old looked forward to in those last days of the coming age of the Messiah has come true in Jesus Christ. What they thought was reserved for the end of history has broken into history. The last days have broken into the present evil age. You see, with the resurrection of Jesus... And his ascension into heaven and the pouring out of God's spirit, which we read of in Acts chapter 2, the last days have dawned in history. We are in the last days right now. We have been since Jesus was risen from the dead, and we will be until he returns again. And this is where we find a key difference 
between the book of Revelation and Old Testament prophecy is in their understanding of what time it is. You see, John self-consciously understood that he was prophesying, he was truth-telling in the midst of the very last days that the prophets promised about. Look with me at just a few references. Look look at verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And then jump down to verse 3. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And then at the end of the verse, For the time is near. This sounds an awful lot like Jesus saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, like the, the prophets of old, John is telling the truth to his readers here in the book of Revelation. And we're going to hear him give us many ethical challenges. Each of these seven addresses to the churches will be an ethical challenge. But the difference is that these ethical challenges come now to us in light of what Jesus has already done. They come to us in the last days. They're a charge to turn from sin back to God precisely because the blessings of the Messiah that were promised for so long are now available to us by faith in Jesus. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. It is an ethical challenge for the last days meaning not some specific time at the very end of history, but for the whole church since Acts chapter 2 all the way up until Jesus returns. So it's an unveiling. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. And lastly, the book of Revelation is a letter. Would you read with me verse 4 and then the beginning of verse 5? It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Now, to those of you who are remotely familiar with the New Testament, these two verses should sound very familiar to you. And even if you're not familiar to the New Testament, you might have your ears say, okay, I don't really know what's going on in the Bible, but that sounds like the beginning of a letter. And you would be correct if you're thinking that. The book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle John to these seven churches in Asia meaning Asia Minor, which for us in our geographical context is modern-day Turkey. Now, I have to confess that I regret a little bit what we named this series already, which is not a good thing. But I think I, I, I regret it because I think it can be misleading for us. So I think if you hear the title to our sermon series, Letters to the Churches, you might be led to think, that just chapters 2 and 3 are these seven specific letters to each individual church, and then the rest of the book of Revelation is something else entirely. And that's not at all what this introduction is telling us. Rather, the whole book 
is one letter from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 22. The whole book of Revelation is addressed to these specific churches in a specific location with specific needs and problems. Now, you might ask, okay, I understand. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that so important? I think it's so important because this keeps us from fanciful, crazy, wild interpretations of this book. You see, if what we're saying about the book of Revelation wouldn't have been understood to those people and Christians in first century Asia, if they wouldn't have been able to understand what you're saying in interpreting the book in their own context as a challenge ethically to follow Jesus— then we're probably not understanding the book correctly. So as a silly example, if we take the locust imagery that appears in the book of Revelation and say, those are Russian helicopters, people in 95 AD in Asia Minor are not going to know what helicopters are or what the heck Russia is. So it's probably not a good interpretation because this is a letter to a specific church in a specific context. And just like the letters of the New Testament as well, That means it also applies to us in our context. So in summary, with all that said, what is this book? The book of Revelation is a prophetic letter which was written as an encouragement and challenge from the living Jesus to these first century churches in Asia and to all of his church living in these last days from the first century up until today. That is the nature of this book. So then our second question is, why was it written? Why was the book of Revelation written? If I had to give an answer to that question, this would be my thesis statement, if you will, for why the book of Revelation was written. And we're going to unpack this in its three separate pieces. The book of Revelation was written to bring blessing to the church under fire in the last days by lifting our eyes to worship our God. The book of Revelation was written to bring blessing to the church under fire in the last days by lifting our eyes to worship our God. So let's dissect that statement in in three parts. The book of Revelation was written to bring blessing. I know we've read it a few times already in this sermon, but look with me one more time at verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. See, there is a promise attached to the reading and application of this letter, of this book. God wants you to understand this book so that you might be blessed in Jesus Christ. And this is good news for us because it tells us Revelation was not written for Bible scholars. As it says in verse 1, this revelation was to show to his servants. It's for ordinary Christians like you and like me that we might understand and that we might be blessed by the living Jesus in relationship with him as we hear his words. This book is for us. 
that we might find blessing in Christ. So it was written to bring blessing to the church under fire in the last days. Now, we already said that this letter was written to the churches in Asia Minor near the end of the first century. And at the end of the first century, in that part of the world, Christians were beginning to feel pressure. Many scholars believe that the book of Revelation was written around 95 AD, during the reign of the emperor Domitian. Now, if Nero, the the preceding emperor, was the one that started the fire of Christian persecution in the Roman Empire, Domitian cranked up the heat. Nero only persecuted the church in and around Rome, but Domitian is the emperor that begins to spread Christian persecution more widely throughout the empire, including parts of Asia Minor. So the church is beginning to feel the pressure and threat of persecution. But not only did they have the Roman emperor breathing down their neck, but we also uh, gather from reading these seven addresses to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 that the church was also facing the threat of false teaching and moral compromise with the culture around them. There, the age in which they were living led to specific threats to them continuing on and persevering in following Jesus. And church, no matter the temperature of the age in which we live, we are also tempted to forsake our faithful witness to Jesus. There are many things, no matter what age we might live in, that would tempt us to give up following Jesus. So if our age is calm, we might be tempted towards apathy. If our age is hostile to Christianity, we might be tempted towards discouragement or towards returning hostility to those who are hostile to us. If our age is one of moral corrosion, we might be tempted towards moral compromise. And if our age is one of prosperity, we might be tempted to seek comfort. Now, as we look around at the age in which we live today, almost all of those things are true. Almost all of those threats face us as we seek to persevere in following Jesus. And so this book is an, is an encouragement for us to continue on. And the book also tells us, part of its pulling back the curtain is telling us that the church living in the last days is not living in peacetime, but in wartime. You see, the last days of Jesus' blessing breaking into history means that the days of blessing in the Messiah are also overlapping with our present evil age. And what that means is that there is an intensification in our day of the conflict between Jesus and the kingdom of darkness. If Jesus has broken into history by his resurrection and is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that means that the work of our enemy and the work of the kingdom of darkness is also cranking up the heat. And this letter was written to these seven churches and to the, our, the churches of our own day, to us, 
as we are on the front lines. And so whether it might feel like it or not, if you claim the name of Jesus in these last days, your life is one of warfare, not of peace. And so how do we continue following Jesus so that we might receive blessing as we as the church are under fire in the last days? Well, this book was written to bring blessing to the church under fire in the last days by lifting our eyes to worship our God. Would you read with me verses four through eight again? John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As we read these verses at the introduction to this book. Our hearts ought to come alive in worship of the one who is and who was and who is to come. See, the way in which the Christian church under the temptation and fire of these last days continues to follow Jesus and receive blessing from him is to fix our eyes on him in worship. See, as we read those verses, you'll notice that there are descriptors of Jesus and of God the Father that talk about him both as Lord over history and as intimately involved in history. So in verses 4 and 8, God is described as the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Our God is past present, and future. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter and the last letter of the alphabet, the beginning and the end. Nothing happens on the playing field of world history from the moment that he created everything to the moment that he will come again that has taken him by surprise. He rules over it all. He is in complete control and he knows what he is doing. As this book pulls back the curtain on what is going on on history, we find a God who is absolutely in control, which means that what is happening in this world is no accident. It has a purpose. Your life is no accident. Your life is not without purpose. There is one who rules over it all. And we also see in these verses that this one who is sovereign over all history is the one who is intimately involved in it. 
our God is so invested in history that he entered into it in the person of Jesus in order to see history through to its fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. See, Jesus took on flesh and blood and then let his flesh be torn and his blood be shed so that we, despite our sin, could have a place in his eternal kingdom. So that we could minister as priests before him forever in communion with our God. The God of history of past, present, and future, suffered, died, and rose from the dead in time and space so that you can endure the fires of these last days and be raised in glory with Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. And as verse 7 says, one day Jesus will come and make all things right and new. Both God's rule over history and his action in history for us ought to lead us to worship. And that's what verses five and six do. John can't hold it in. He knows what he's going to write about. He has already seen this revelation of the living Jesus and worship bubbles up out of him. He can't keep it contained. And it's precisely worship like this which will sustain us through times of tribulation. Revelation was written to bring blessing to the church under fire in the last days by lifting our eyes to worship our God. And so the question is, does your reading of Revelation lead you more to fear, worry, and anxiety about the present and the future than it does to worship Jesus. We have enough to be worried and anxious about in our world. I am tempted to be anxious and to worry about so many things. We have so many reasons to fear. This book was not written to stoke your fear and anxiety about what might come. This book was written to pull back the curtain and show you your strong, mighty, and living Savior so that you might worship him and follow him. If your reading of this book does not lead you to worship, then I would submit to you that you're not understanding it the way that Jesus wants you to understand it. This book was written so that when you feel pressure from all sides, from your own sinful heart, from those around you, from a culture that is growing more hostile towards Christianity, that you might be able to worship the living Jesus and run for refuge into his strong arms. In closing, let me leave you with the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. We might say, worship him. 
him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood amen let's worship him and follow him in this age would you pray with me and I'll invite the worship team to come back up Lord Jesus, we thank you that we see in this book you as our king who is intimately involved in world history, who is the one who brings history in this world to its climax and completion. Lord Jesus, may our study of this book as we get close to it and even this morning as we've spent some time in it, May you reveal the living Jesus to us and may we worship him. And may that worship day by day sustain us through whatever, the fi- whatever fire these end times might bring to us specifically in our age right now today. Lord, we love you. We ask for your grace and ability to endure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.